Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who have we got with us today? We've got Peter Reval, who is an archaeologist specialising in the Bronze Age, and he also works for the British Museum's Portable Antiquity Scheme. And today he's going to tell us what, what, what this is. So w- welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. This is brilliant. Like, you are essentially the treasure place. Like, Nicolas Cage needs to watch his back. Um, so what is the Treasure Act of 1996, and why is it relevant to what we're going to be talking about today? Well, the Treasure Act um, applies just to England and Wales, um, mm-hmm. and I get to, to deal with it a lot because um, people who go out metal detecting, people who, who dig things up in their gardens, um, it's the one piece of legislation in the UK that, that you need to be aware of. And so um, I get lots of emails saying, I found this really cool thing in, the, in my garden. What is it? Or I've been out metal detecting, and here's some stuff. And it's part of my role to go through that. And if I see something which is treasure or potential treasure, I need to tell them that so they can obey the law. 2015, something happened that you got really, really involved with, which reflect, which well, basically talks about the Treasure Act, doesn't it? It does, yeah. As in, I work really closely with the metal detecting community um, in my patch. And I cover um, Shropshire in Herefordshire, which sits next to Wales um, in England. So I've got a sort of a borderland. And I work really closely with the metal detectorist in my part of the world. So I get to hear when something interesting has been found um, because uh, rumours go round faster than anything else. So I get to hear about stuff on the grapevine. And back in 2015... Part of that was that I'd heard that two chaps had come up from South Wales and found something really exciting outside Lempster, which is um, a market town in Herefordshire. And I didn't think too much of it because, I, as I say, I, I hear lots of rumours, but um, it was the same story from lots of different people. And they said, oh, you need to go on the web, you need to go onto this forum because you can see some pictures of it. And by the time I got there, I could see nothing. And that's not unusual because <laughs> I'm an archaeologist. So, um, yeah, as in, I started to put some feelers out and to find out what was going on. And in the meantime, um, one of my colleagues down in, in South Wales, uh, Mark, um, who works at the National Museum and Galleries in Wales, um, had two metal detectors bring in a selection of finds, which they found near Lambstone. We're like, ah, problem solved. That's okay. That's what they found. And, there were some really interesting objects. There was a, a, a massive um, silver 
um, armlet, so something which go around the top of your arm, around your bicep, with a, a, a beast biting itself. There was a massive gold ring, a real sort of knuckle duster of a gold ring. And um, there are also some, a, a couple of silver coins. And those silver coins were really, really rare, as in stupidly rare, as in they're only sort of 20 or 30 of, of these sort of have been found in the last sort of 40 years. And um, at that point, Mark did his, his treasure talk and was like, yes, these gold objects are treasure. And there are these two silver coins. They're, little, they're also, because they're roughly the same date. They were from the, um, from um, around about the sort of 7th century, 7th, 8th century AD. Um, and he said, okay, this looks like a hoard. And they're like, oh no, these two coins were found way apart from one another. They couldn't be found together. And that sort of set the alarm bells ringing and the fact that I'd heard the rumours as well. And it all then went a bit quiet until a cache of coins was um, reported from a, a major um, coin dealer in, in London. And um, within those were, were similar coins in a similar condition. And slowly we had the feeling that there was this massive hoard had been discovered. And yeah, as in we weren't as archaeologists seeing it. Ouch. So let's let's go back a bit. Metal sure. detecting. We all know what it is. Uh, this is people with metal detectors who go out for fun and go looking for stuff but where do they go and you mentioned like a whole community so are there hot spots for it uh, and what if they're not allowed to keep treasure is it just a hobby thing do they just want the kudos of going to find it what kind of motivates people to do this as a hobby so there's there's lots of reasons people go out metal detecting and um some of it's to do with with mental health some of it's to do with sort of as in being outside in the countryside and, and sort of like golf is a as a good walk ruins while metal detecting also gets you outside and out and about and in the way it happens it's not necessarily a bad thing um our take on it though is that these metal detectors go ping and they dig up a find and that find could be something which was lost 10 years ago but it could be something which was lost a thousand years or two thousand years ago and um all of that information is what the portable antiquity scheme is about. So we basically record objects, whether they're treasure or not, um, as long as they have an archaeological interest to them. And the reason for that is that our sort of country, our, our landscape is made up of a patchwork of sites, but it's not just limited to the sites we know about. There are undiscovered sites, there are undiscovered settlements and things like that. There's also the stuff which happens between the gaps, as in all the stuff which falls in the gaps, which has this sort of potential of telling us something really, really exciting about our history, about sort of the archaeology of British Isles. And so the, the scheme was set up to record all of this and extra information. And part of that is that we deal with treasure. But for every sort of Every year, I see maybe 20 or 30 treasure cases from my patch. I know there are at least sort of two or 3,000 objects found, and they might not be treasure. So part of my role is, is treasure, but part of it isn't. And the whole purpose of this is that it's a, a relationship. So the detectorist has to be comfortable with coming into a museum and, and saying, here's some stuff I found. And likewise, I need to be comfortable with them coming in and saying, well, yeah, here's this stuff. I'll tell you a little bit about it. I'll make a record of it and then we'll all be richer for it. 
And that, that works really well. Over the last 20 years, um, the schemes, are, a national scheme, has recorded 1.5 million artefacts found by the public, which is a stupidly large amount of stuff, which basically is, is people's rubbish that's been thrown away and that, that we're now looking through. I really like that because in Poland, metal detecting is actually illegal. So if you're ever found with a metal detector, I'm not quite sure of the law how it works exactly, but I think they, you can go to prison for it. Is that Somebody to do was, with the danger of what you could be digging up in Poland, though? Um, it's, do, you know, do you know what it actually really is to do? It's to do with uh, Nazi memorabilia. Because mm. um, obviously you're going to find lots of... Because I, I know we're going completely off topic here, but the you know if you're finding things like, I don't know, buttons with a swastika on it or something, for example, and that, that kind of bartering is actually illegal in this country. Mm. Um, and I understand why it is, but you have to get special permission. You have to be an archaeologist. You have to, you know, this is long process to even be able to be out with your metal detector. And even if you're out there, the police are still going to stop you and ask you for documents and all sorts of things. Yeah, and that's the case across most of Europe. So England and Wales have a very interesting sort of way they look at the law. And there was, back in the 1980s, there was a, a huge campaign to try and stop metal detecting or to license it or to control it and the UK went down one way of of trying to deal with this and PAS is part of our our solution to that which is basically as long as you have the permission of the landowner to be where you are and you're not on a scheduled monument or a protected site then you can basically go metal detecting um, and there are very very few things so everything we record is voluntary apart from the treasure, which is, is sort of legally something you have to do. So it's up to the metal detectorist and it's up to the landowner whether they report those finds. And that really messes with the heads with lots of archaeologists. And across Europe, it's seen as being quite a, an unusual and odd thing. But then Britain in Europe is, is the odd one out in so many different ways. We won't even go there. <laughs> How many times, I'm just curious, did people end up in jail here then? So it happens, and it happens now more frequently than not. So every year there are a handful of, of sort of criminal trials where people have, have either deliberately um, not reported an object that they had to, or um, they've been sort of convicted of, of, of theft, which is basically they've been on the land without the permission of the landowner and stolen the objects. But that is really, really rare. Um, I think we try and take the approach of, um, and this is part of the Treasure Act, is that you might find an object of treasure and you have a legal obligation to report that. But if a local museum wants to acquire it, wants to sort of own it, then they pay um, the market value for it. And that market value is split between the finder and the landowner. And so that's why you have sort of cases like the Staffordshire Hoard, where um, two museums in Stoke and Birmingham um, acquired it and the, the sort of finder and the landowner got significant amounts of money for these objects. So in a way, the system is set up in a way that rewards good practice and rewards finders for doing the right thing. And that payment is completely tax-free. Um, it's a gift from the Crown um, because under our law, all items of treasure belong to the Crown, belong to the Queen. Did the guys in uh, 2015, did they get arrested? So, yeah, as in, basically, we started, as in, sort of, we informed the police that we felt that there was a, a much larger 
um, group material um, than had been reported. And the police started a police investigation of that, as, as they would of, of any crime. And as their investigation unfolded, they did lots of things. So they, um, they investigated, they, they looked through the, the phone records and computer records of, of the people that were arrested. They searched their houses and their properties and their vehicles. Um, and um, English Heritage or Historic England, which is sort of the, the national um, sort of heritage agency in, in England and Wales, or in England, funded a massive excavation project or landscape project um, outside Lempster to try and understand where these finds were uh, were from in, in the ground and um, to understand sort of why they were there. So although this story is all about sort of these, these metal detectorists were arrested and um, were, were later imprisoned um, and the, the stuff they found is, is worth millions, of uh, millions of pounds, as in individual coins were worth ten to fifteen thousand pounds a piece. So there's this this huge sort of um, story there about theft, but there's also a huge sort of archaeological question of of why is this stuff where it was found? I really want to know. So where this stuff was found, what's significant about where they found the hoard? So if you walked to this field, it mm. looks like almost every other field in Herefordshire. It's wet, well, when I was there, it was wet and soggy and um, ploughed, um, ploughed for crops. Um, the interesting thing is, is Lempster itself. So Lempster is a, um, has a very early foundation as a town. It's sort of set up by um, a branch of the Mercian kings in the, the 6th and 7th century and was the principal town of Herefordshire for maybe sort of three or four hundred years so it has a monastery it has a very sort of strong market and it's only when sort of in the late saxon period and in in the norman period that that focus shifts sort of shifts down to hereford um so we've got a royal center and a a religious center so a, a place of power um and looking at the landscape so um there are a number of of um sort of sunken ways so sort of medieval or well penetrated much earlier routes from this and that this fine spot sits very close to a spring very close to one of these route sort of routeways out out of the town um and so it would be a, a fairly straightforward place to put it um we i keep mentioning sort of words like saxon and, and norman so this horde is a, a horde of viking either viking objects or objects which the Vikings have acquired. And um, at this point, we are, are looking at a, a country in flux, a, a country of kingdoms. And it's at a, a point where a great army of Vikings comes down from the north and from the east and uh, raids Alfred's Wessex and then basically overwinters in a number of places. Uh, and that's very well understood in sort of eastern Britain. But in western Britain, we have very, very little evidence for this this sort of activity. And this hoard is one of the, the very first pieces of evidence for the, the march for the for the borderlands of of this sort of activity being there at all. So do we know actually why they left these hordes? So there's lots of different reasons. Um, one of them is 
I, they, as in most of these hordes, which were worth a lot of, of money, sort of contemporary at the time, are basically somebody putting it somewhere safe and hoping to come back and, and collect it. Um, and that's probably what this hoard is. It's probably a, um, a packet, a parcel of, of gold and silver, um, deliberately hidden with the intention of, of coming back and, and um, using it, taking it away, benefiting from it. The one slight curveball here is that it's found very close to a spring head. And so that always says, well, is there a ritual thing there? Is it a, a gift to the gods? Is it a, a tithe? Is it a thing of goodwill? As in, we've been out, uh, we've gathered all this material together. Um, is this a sort of percentage to, to give back to, to make sure that we have continued good luck? So the problem with, with all of these discoveries, no matter what they are, is that there's probably about six reasons for them to be in the ground. And we as archaeologists can only guess at what those are. Um, and anybody who tells you different is is probably not telling the truth. Speaking of not telling the truth, how many fines were made last year, do you think, and how many were declared? That's a really good question. It's something which is really hard to, to get around. Last year was, was a difficult year because of the pandemic and mm-hmm. sort of metal detecting has been severely curtailed because of sort of the global emergency and sort of healthcare crisis. So at the moment, as I'm speaking to you now, um, metal detecting in England um, is not allowed. It's, it's, you can't go about it. It's, Does it not count as exercise? It, some people would like it to, yeah. but at the moment it isn't on the list of, of permitted things to do as exercise. Okay. Um, although Is there a list? I didn't know that. There's, there's a list and it depends on who you speak to is what goes on the list. But apparently you can go fishing now um because that's exercise um sitting on your ass staring at the water exactly getting cold walking up and down with a metal detector is not it just says it all doesn't it yeah so (laughs) as in i think so technically nobody should be metal detecting so at the moment technically unless you're an archaeologist uh on a construction site because as in archaeologists use metal detectors as well yeah and i guess construction Um, site is the only way you could essentially be archaeology-ing at the moment isn't it yeah yeah, Alex, so, you've got to change your uh, your your job status now. Go and be an archaeologist and get yourself on a building site. I know because it's a central No, but you could find some interesting shit. <laughs> I could because I've got so many free hours in the day. No, you don't. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, really, then nothing was. Well, I guess they could have been out in the summer declaring, couldn't they? So, yeah, as in at, at points during last year. Um, at different stages, um, metal detection was allowed. And last year, a thousand, over a thousand, um, there were over a thousand treasure cases from England and Wales. Um, usually, the year before, there was about 1,200. So, as in, people were out and, and finding stuff. But our, our figures for last year su- suggest that sort of fewer things were, were offered for recording. Mm-hmm. Um, in a normal year, um, I always think we probably see the majority of the important finds, uh, which would be important to the story of, of a county or a place. Um, but we probably only see um, a percentage of the other in-hand yeah. finds. As in, because of the way the law works here, a finder isn't obligated to report their finds if they're not treasure. So it's, it's always an individual decision. 
and it's often a decision by the landowner and the and the finder as well so the landowner whose who's land they're on might say i don't want anybody to know what you're finding on my my ground and and the detectorist will say fair enough um now the problem is that there are hundreds of fines that will then sit in somebody's display cabinet um and the, the sort of the, fine, the information about where they're from could well be lost and what you end up then is with just stuff just things um old things which which could be quite important for a place's story not being sort of recognized or or understood or being put into context um and that is that's one of the real tragedies of of our system is that um we 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 lose a huge amount from it um and that's really hard being an archaeologist because in an ideal world we're like sort of um what's the character who's got to catch the Indiana Jones no the uh, computer game um uh, Laura Croft no uh you've got to catch them all is the catchphrase um Pokemon Pokemon so archaeologists basically Pokemon we want to catch them all we want to get all <laughs> the information okay. but we're also there where we, we we know that we won't get all of that information so it's all about sort of trying to find a balance trying to be pragmatic over sort of the amazing things which are found and balance that against the sort of things that we might lose out on so for example you mentioned Poland how many people are metal detecting in Poland without a license and with as in being completely illegal and if it's completely illegal how do the museums ever see the stuff which they find as in yeah it must be as in it it must happen everywhere but it's just how you capture that information yeah because somebody could go into the middle of a forest or the middle of a field where nobody can see them there's no you know parking or roads or anything and they're out in the middle of this field just metal detect- nobody's going to bother them find something stick a flag in it dig it up yeah take it home and that's part of the problem isn't it is in is where where does the the line get drawn where does sort of the archaeology become suffer so badly from it that you have to do something and if if you've if that community is sort of ostracized how do you then sort of bring them back on board to get the information out of them as in what what do you lose i've got it art just because this is me what have you so when you catch people and they're in trouble and that how much opposition do they put up do they just go oh it's a fair cop i didn't declare i'm in trouble or do you end up dealing with some mad people well the, the thing with the treasure act is there's this this clause in it which basically says if you don't realize what you found and then somebody says wow that's really important you need to make a record or you need to report that as potential treasure then as long as they do that within 14 days they won't sort of they won't sort of face prosecution over it so you might have and this happens a lot not necessarily because they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes it's just because i'll see a broken object which and i'm like that's a bit off of one of those and it's only when they understand the whole object they go oh yeah of course that's that's that i've had that in the bottom of my case for for 15 years and never known what it was so there there is that element to it whereas you've also got the blatant stuff which is where this case from lempster is so you've got guys who who know what they found they've deliberately concealed sort of the finding of it and then they've gone on to the black market they've gone through sort of back channels as it were to try and shift 
the, the majority of the staff. Um, and that's the real tragedy of, of this hoard is that we have probably about 10% of it, or the police were able to recover 10% of the find, which means there's 90% still out there waiting to, to be covered, whether it's within a, a collector's stash, whether it's in, in private hands. We, we just don't know. Um, and the police have said they're going to keep a, a sort of an open file on it and, and hope that one day more information will come forward. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So this is a completely stupid question for me, but how much of an access do you have to this black market? I mean, do you hear things on the grapevine? Do you have like maybe spies somewhere in there? Um, you know, me with this extravagant kind of thing in my mind going, oh my God, it's like this whole spy network. of Like, like the dark net. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so basically we can only act on the information we're given and we're not police officers. So we can't arrest people. We can't compel them to do anything. Um, and it's through the goodwill of the metal detecting community. So basically, those people who go out metal detecting and follow the rules, uh, which are the vast majority, and are as appalled, if not more appalled, by people who, who sort of break the law. They're the ones who come forward and tell us this information. It isn't about sort of us being there as sort of archaeological spies. Um, it's about sort of us working in, in sort of direct contact with, with this community and saying, look, if you tell us about stuff, well, we'll take action, but we can't, we can't do anything without that information. And it's through those sort of that goodwill, those, those sort of areas of, of um, cooperation and trust is how we, we get to know about these things. Um, so if these guys from, from Lempster had, um, hadn't been on the web and hadn't told their mates look at this really cool stuff we found, um, we wouldn't have known any different. And in fact, if you said, would you put a pin on a map in Herefordshire where a Viking horde would be found, it wouldn't be there. As in, it wouldn't, in the first 10 pin pricks, it wouldn't be there. Um, and the reason is that, as, as we said before, as in, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you find something and if you don't tell anyone, how do you know it was found? people get into this solely to make money i think some do um i think some do and if you if you type roman coin or um roman brooch or medieval coin into ebay or etsy or, or one of the sort of the, the auction websites 
you will come up with a huge number of objects for sale, quite, quite legally, probably in most cases. Um, so there are people there who supplement their income from metal detecting. Um, but equally, I, I'd say sort of a good sort of eight out of 10 people that I meet, um, they're in it for the hobby. They're in it for the sort of the information, the sort of the landscape history of, of where they live. So the vast majority of people who go metal detecting that I deal with tend to metal detect in around the places they live or work. And because of that, um, we have a huge sort of knowledge about sort of the early history of, of some of the villages in our part of the world. And it isn't through sort of the history of the, of the places. It's, it's physically in the objects that people pull out of the ground. Um, and that is, is sort of, you can understand why somebody would, would want to do that. Um, personally, for me, I think with the amount of stuff that I see being found and the, num- the amount of sort of, if you think if, if you empty the contents of your house into a field and leave it for 100 years, the only stuff you're going to pick out is the stuff which doesn't burn and won't rot away. So you think of the, the hundreds of thousands of bits of metal which have no interest to them whatsoever these guys are finding those mm. but they're also finding sort of a few objects which are much much older so i think it's sort of it takes a, a certain mindset and a certain sort of interest in the past to do it and it is very hands-on as in it i, I understand the appeal completely um although i have lots of other sort of hobbies that i can go and do which which means I stay warm and dry inside, which is what I prefer. <laughs> have to ask, so we've talked a lot about the naughty people, but where do the finds go, the good finds, when people are nice and they come and tell you? And So we, over the last sort of 15, 20 years or so, um, the museums that, that we all work alongside are much richer in the number of objects so those are objects which have have either been purchased through the treasure act acquired through the treasure act they they might be gifts so um i know in shropshire our um handling collection uh, which goes out into schools is is very much the richer because lots of people have said oh could you would the museum want that and we're like well it was not quite good enough or we've got an example of that already in the museum but um, we could use it to go out into schools to educate them about the Romans, for example. Um, I think that sort of every metal detectorist has a cabinet of finds that they think are their, their best finds. And so there's a, a sort of a, an ownership, a sort of a, a community curation of, of these objects as well. Um, and a lot of the finders give the objects to the farmers, especially in this part of the world where farmers are sort of second and third generation farmers so that their family has a, a strong link with that that place and that that landscape um and so sort of there are certain farms in the county with with large collections of material which have come up through metal detecting and that sort of sit in the farmhouse or or in the local church or in the village hall um allowing sort of the community around them to understand the the history of the place as well um and of course there are there, there's in I've got a wish list of things that I wish people would find because um, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply interested in them. Oh, tell us the wish list. So you mentioned I'm a Bronze Age archaeologist and I've been very lucky recently um, that there's an amazing 
um, site within Shropshire, which is producing large amounts of, of um, Bronze Age metalwork. Um, it's a wetland site where, where a community has deliberately placed these amazingly beautiful objects into um, into the into the sort of the ground as part of some form of ritual, some form of of understanding, some form of of sort of gift offering to the place and to the gods or or whatever it might be. And this is a a repetition that happens right from sort of the beginning of the Bronze Age. So that's around about sort of 4,000-ish years ago through the Iron Age and into the Roman period. So it's, if you think about sort of churches which have a long history of sort of a thousand years or so, we've got a, a, a religious site, a lands, religious landscape with objects which have been placed within it over at least 2,000 years, maybe 3,000 years in some places. So trying to unpick the evidence for that is absolutely fascinating and, and sort of lots of these objects are covered by the Treasure Act. So we are, as in the Tropshire Museums, have, have benefited or will benefit through acquiring those um and likewise actually one of the pieces which is a a sun pendant a, a gold um sun pendant uh, i'll send you some photos so you can show people on the podcast which is absolutely fantastic it's, it's maybe the most beautiful thing i've seen being an archaeologist in 25 years or so it's it's unbelievably nice and that's been acquired by the british museum for display to anybody who visits there so there are opportunities for this amazing material to, to really change the way we think. And this Bronze Age and, and the later prehistoric landscape is almost unique in Western Britain. It, it, it has the potential of changing our understanding completely. And we're very lucky that the finders involved in this aren't like the, the, the chaps from Lemster. They are there. And yes, they will benefit financially from it but they're there on the wet days when um, we've had archaeologists go out and look and they've helped with the barrows and with the, the sectioning and with the peak coring so from that perspective they're as invested in in understanding about the people who live there as, as anybody else i think you've pretty much just covered our last three questions <laughs> <laughs> I was I was sitting there thinking, where am I going to throw a question in here? And then I kind of thought, do you know what? Unless you Just want to let him talk. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think we should finish here nicely. I don't know what you think, Alex. I do well. We were going to ask you what interested you the most, but you kind of covered that. But is there anything else you? Is there anything you found as an archaeologist not been handed as part of the program that was your greatest find? So I worked as a field archaeologist for five years, six years or so, um, working on commercial sites in sort of in in urban centres um, and also out in the countryside. And I think within my first year of working for the PAS, I'd seen more objects found by just normal people than I had ever discovered. Um, <laughs> what you're saying is your whole life has been wasted on yeah, well, basically, as an archaeologist. I, <laughs> I, I just sort of ride now. I ride the wave of other people's glory, as it were, rather than um, anything else. I suppose my my personal favourite objects are actually ones that I found with my kids. Yeah. So we've got a field near to where we live that we've got permission to go field walking on, 
and my kids are sort of um, 11 and 13 and over the last three or four years we've picked up maybe 20 or 30 worked flints from this field and through their eyes I can see the wonder of holding something for the first time since it was lost sort of 6,000 years ago and actually it's that discovery that moment of discovery that opportunity of physically holding a piece of the past in your hand which is why I became an archaeologist as in it's that sort of that buzz you get from from finding um, the buzz for me now is is through knowing why it's there but for them the fact that they can sort of walk with their dad and their mum up and down a field and come and bring me this what's this and I'm like oh that's a bit of rubbish or that's a bit of field drain or that's a bit of pottery or actually no that's really interesting that's a a Bronze Age scrape or a, a Neolithic um, or, or or what have you. So I can see why people get into this finding malarkey. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, as in we have our own little little altar, a little little collection of of things, found things. But within that, there are also fossils. There are also seashells. There are also shiny pebbles that you pick up on the beach or that you happen to find in the gravel as you're walking home. Mm-hmm. So their understanding of treasure is very, very different, but actually is as important as anything else. They value sort of the things that, that are associated with memories and that sort of are about, about sort of their own journeys. And I think that's as important as, as any gold neck ring or um, silver coin. Um, I think it's those things that we need to capture and treasure and, and remember is, is that feeling of, being the first person to find something or, or learn something new. Um, and yeah, as in, that's why I do the job that I do now, um, even if it is at arm's length from, from physical finding. Peter, thank you so much. That was so interesting, learning more about the uh, British Museum's Portable Antiquity Scheme. I mean, I didn't know a lot of this, and now maybe I might start coming to the UK and doing some metal detecting, find some stuff, and we can hang out. Excellent. You're more than welcome. Thank you so much. Join us tomorrow when Kate Owen will be discussing her speciality, which is early modern recipe books. They don't just have recipes in their family heirlooms. They get handed down generation after generation. They have some really interesting stuff in and some really disgusting recipes as well. So join us to find out all about them. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.